Well, if you are, you've been with us, you know we are making our way through the book of Daniel. We read our text today, Daniel 7. If you are visiting with us, you picked a doozy of a Sunday to be here, given the text we read, but this is what we'll be working through today. My sister's favorite book of all time is the children's picture book, Where the Wild Things Are. You may remember it's the story of a young boy named Max who throws a tantrum and is sent to his room. And there he explores his wild side. And he meets up with some big, nasty, hairy creatures. And he enjoys being with them for a little while. But eventually they go to sleep. And he, gets to start, he starts feeling lonely and feeling a little bit afraid. And so Max decides that he wants to go back, and so he gets in a boat and sails back home to find a warm bowl of soup to welcome him. I share that because as I prepared the sermon this week, I couldn't get this thought out of my head that Daniel 7 is where the wild things are in the Bible. We find strange creatures with paws and claws and feathers and uh, all kinds of things, much like what Max saw. But I also share that because I think the journey that Max went on in his book is the same journey that we should go on in this chapter. Max enjoyed the beast for a little bit, but then he, he realized that it wasn't what he really needed or wanted, and he got afraid. And so Max moved from fear to comfort. And brothers and sisters, I think the message of Daniel 7 does the same for us when rightly understood. It moves us from fear to comfort. Today we move from the stories of Daniel in chapter 1 through 6 to the back half of the book, which are chapters 7 through 12, the visions of Daniel. You, you, you may remember or may have noticed in the reading today, if you're new to Christianity or just new to the Bible, you may have been listening going, I had no idea what he was talking about in that chapter. Well, don't feel bad. Most of us don't either. Furthermore, Daniel didn't either. Did you notice that? We've seen him for six chapters, and what's the deal? He's the guy that interprets the visions. And yet he's the guy scratching his head, terrified, because he can't interpret the visions. Now, the reason that he and we feel this way is because that's how this book is written. That's the emotion it should evoke. This book is a lot like the book of Revelation, if you're familiar. It's a, it's a very unique style of writing. It's sometimes called apocalyptic literature. In my first sermon of the Daniel series, I described it as prophecy on LSD. I don't know if I stand by that or not, but regardless, I don't, like I don't, I don't know what LSD is, but, but regardless, it's a kind of prophecy that's got bright, vibrant colors and distorted familiar pictures and, and rich symbolism that kind of looks familiar but kind of doesn't look familiar. And it's supposed to overwhelm us to some degree. Think of it like reading a newspaper. If you're reading the obituary and then you flip the page, you get to the comics. 
If, if you're reading Calvin and Hobbes and you're crying, you haven't changed to the comics yet. You're supposed to be laughing. Because the comics are filled with pictures, exaggerations, little word ideas and play on words, things that the obituaries don't have. So when we come to the second half of Daniel, we have to realize that we got to tune our brains to read it a little bit different. Pictures, especially in passages like this, they speak truly and accurately, just not always precisely. What they're saying is true and right, but it's hard sometimes to grasp. It'd be like if 10 of us went to the, the museum to look at a piece of art, and I said, what do you think that means? And you'd probably get 10 different, set, you know, maybe some overlap of some things, but there wouldn't be exactly the same takeaway from it. Why? Because pictures are true, but they're not always precise that way. And so often what we do with this is we zoom in where I think sometimes we're better served by zooming out. So with that said, I'm going to make a pledge to you today and for the next few weeks. As we make our way through these chapters from Daniel 7 through the end of the book in chapter 12, my pledge to you this morning is this. I will not preach what I suspect. I will preach what I know. I'm convinced that the pulpit should be a place of proclamation, not speculation. Now, it is perfectly fine to speculate. In fact, I'm suspicious about a whole lot of stuff. If you want to know what I suspect, buy me a steak dinner, and I'll tell you everything <laughs> that I suspect about Daniel. Throw in dessert, and I'll just tell you your view is right, and we'll have a great time, okay? I promise, all right? But, but, but my burden and, and my calling and my job is not just to, to take you from this view to that view or this chart to that chart. My goal is to take you from fear to comfort. Because that's the larger picture that we're supposed to take away from Daniel chapter 7. Well, you may remember we said before that Daniel, the, the previous chapters in Daniel sort of went together. We said Daniel 4 and 5 should be read together. Do you remember it was two kings and two different outcomes? And then we said that Daniel 3 and 5 should be, uh, excuse me, 3 and 6 should be read together. Two trials and two deliverances. So it shouldn't surprise you to learn that Daniel 2 and 7 should also be read together. Because why? They're both dreams. They're both about four kingdoms, and they both end with an emphasis that one final kingdom will come and overwhelm them all. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, and in Daniel's dream here in chapter 7, we find the vision in the first half, and then we find the interpretation in the second half. So, so let's notice what Daniel sees. There's an interesting timestamp in verse 1. It says, in verse 1, in the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. So if you've been with us in the Daniel series, you know that we have now gone back to the future. We, we jumped back in time. We, we ended last week with the reign of, of Cyrus. Now we go back to before chapter 5. This is after chapter 4 somewhere. By the way, one of the reasons that I think Daniel has such a, a backbone of steel 
at the handwriting on the wall incident is because he has actually already seen the vision of chapter 7 and chapter 8. Those are dated prior to that night. So it wasn't just meeny, meeny, tickle you far. He had seen a lot more. And he knew that the end of the empire was on the horizon. By the way, I think this chapter is, is sometimes tough to interpret or nail down because look at the end of verse 1. He says that he relates to us the following summary of it. So this may not have been everything that he saw, but it was the, the gist of what he saw. Which, by the way, can I remind you, in his word, God has given to us everything that we need to know. But he may not have given to us everything we want to know. And there are times when we're asking questions that the Bible is not trying to answer. And we need to be mindful of that as we make our way through. So he summarizes this vision. What was the vision? The vision begins with Daniel in the blackness of night, looking out over a liquid landscape when suddenly four hurricanes, if you will, sort of emerge and start whipping up the waves of the sea. And then emerging from the depths of the ocean, these four freakish beasts arrive, one after another, after another, after another. The first one looks like a, a mythological griffin, a lion with wings. And while it looks like an animal, it it soon stands up like a man and starts to think like a man. A, a second beast appears, and it's a, a humpbacked bear. Not a fuzzy little teddy bear, but a massive grizzly bear. And if you notice, he's chowing down on some ribs. Some people say, oh, there's three ribs in his mouth. What do the three ribs represent? I'll tell you, it represents lunch. That... That's what he was told, devour and eat. It's gobbling up others. Then there's a third beast that appears. It's fast like a leopard, nimble like a bird, and looking in all directions with its four heads. And then comes the fourth beast. Unlike the other beast, this is not a mixture of animals. If you notice, this one is an odd mixture of animal and metal. Verse 7 says it has iron teeth, and later it says it has bronze claws. One commentator called this robo-beast. Sharp teeth, spiky horns, ten horns, out of which comes one little ugly horn that sprouts and looks around and talks big and scares everyone. And that's the gist of the vision, at least the first half. Four weird creatures, one after another in this turmoil of a typhoon that shows up. Now, everything about this opening scene should disturb us. Even if you don't know the interpretation, which we haven't got there yet, Daniel's about to give us that, even without that, this something's wrong. Something about this strikes us as, as not right. Now, again, it at, at, at some point, it's, it's very tempting to jump from here forwards to the last book of the Bible, but I want to do something a little different. I want to jump backwards to maybe where Daniel would have thought, and that is the first book of the Bible. You say, what? Genesis? What does this have to do with Genesis? Let me show you. Did you notice, first of all, that these beasts are a freak of nature? 
Have you ever seen a four-headed leopard with wings at the zoo? No. They don't exist, and frankly, they shouldn't exist. Each beast in this vision has a Frankenstein-like appearance. And the symbolism is telling us that, that something, it's like something has gone wrong in creation. Do you remember in Genesis 1 when God made mankind, made the animals, made the world? He, he told them something, and that something, he, he, we kind of skip over it and read it fast because we don't think it's important, but maybe it is important when he tells the animals that they are to reproduce, quote, each one according to its kind. Dogs have dogs, monkeys have monkeys. There, there wasn't to be a, 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 the species were to remain distinct. But these Wild things are like an unnatural melding. It's a freakish distortion of what God has already set up in creation. It's like these beasts have transgressed the bounds of creation, producing hybrid creatures, and they're thumbing their nose at God as if to say, we don't want your boundaries. We don't want your constraints. And by the way, if the X-Men movies have taught us anything, it's that mutants are dangerous. <laughs> and these beasts are what they are. They're mutant hybrids contrary to what, to what God set up. So something about this is, is wrong in creation. We also see, when you compare this to Genesis 1, another problem. Did you notice that the beasts here are in charge? Verse 6 says that the third beast was given dominion. By the way, I'm convinced that is the key word of this chapter. Dominion. Notice everywhere it shows up. It's a key moment. This beast was given dominion. The other beasts, it says that they are devouring and crushing and eating and trampling. These beasts are acting like they're the kings of the jungle, if you will. And again, if you go back to Genesis 1, what did God say? God says, we, let us make man in our image and let him have, bingo, dominion. Let him rule over the fish of the sea. And let man rule over the, the, the birds of the air. And let man rule over the cattle. Let man rule over the beasts. Animals are supposed to be the ruled, not the rulers. When you put a pig on a throne, it will make a mess. And this scene is like something. Do you remember Animal Farm? You have to read that in high school? The, the, the beasts are running the place. And the whole scene is chaos. It's wild and untamed. It's violent turmoil. These beasts are snorting and stomping and roaring and warring and raging and changing. And even as you look at it as a whole, it's, it's very clear that it's a very scary and terrifying thing to live in a dog-eat-dog -dog kind of world. God did not intend for the animals to rule over the men. By the way, if you put all these symbols together, I think it reminds us in part that whenever men reject God's good design and creation, the results are scary. Whether it is God's good design for the species, or God's good design for authority, God's good design for gender, or God's good design for marriage. Whenever you stray from that, the result will be a freakish distortion and it will eventually destroy you. That's what's happened here. So that's the opening 
scene, a scary scene where creation is all in turmoil and chaos. Then in verse 9, we come to the second half of the vision. The camera, if you will, which has been focused on the, the sea, zooms, it rockets skyward, and it, it shows up in heaven. And it says in verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up. Now, immediately, there's a difference. Do you see that? Instead of the sea with all of its chaos and turmoil, this picture of heaven is orderly. Thrones are being put where thrones belong. The right people are sitting in the right thrones in the right places, unlike this picture at the beginning. And the one sitting at the key throne is called the Ancient of Days, or the Father of all time. This judge doesn't wear a black robe. He wears a dazzling, brilliant white robe that is so bright and is so luminescent that to stare at it is to hurt your eyes like looking at the sun. And out from underneath the throne, there is a, a river of fire. And his throne is built on these wheels that are also burning. And it is a vision of supreme power, of raw righteousness, of absolute perfection, ideal order, and magnificent glory. Now, most of us would be intimidated by this scene. I know I would. But the fourth beast is not. Did you notice in verse 11 that I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking? The little horn that popped out, what does he do? Instead of seeing this vision and sort of falling before it in awe and in wonder, he is so arrogant and full of himself that he continues to boast and continues to brag. And once again, we see that God resists the proud because the beast is killed and his body is thrown into the lava river. And the other beasts, which are still around, by the way, in verse 12, those other beasts are not yet killed, but they're put on a leash and restrained for a season. And then we come in verse 13 to the most unusual scene. A, a, a chariot of clouds comes rolling up to the throne. He says, 13, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... Now, can I ask an obvious question? Who rides on the clouds? Who floats on the vapor of heaven? Who is it that, that, that at Sinai, who was in the clouds? It was God. At the temple, who was in the smoke? It was God. And yet here we see that it is one like a son of man who was coming. So that means th this one in verse 13 is a man who is also divine. He is earthly and yet he is heavenly. He is mortal yet he is transcendent. He has all the characteristics to be called man and all the characteristics to be called God. He's doing what only God can do by riding in on the clouds. By the way, he not only does the things that only God can do, he also does the things that man was supposed to do. You say, what do you mean? Look at verse 14. And to him, to this one on the clouds, to the Son of Man, was given what? <gasps> Key word. Dominion. 
He was given. Remember Genesis 1? Who was supposed to rule over the beasts? Man was. And so now we have one like the Son of Man who comes. I don't do this often, so if I do, it's maybe significant. Keep your finger there in Daniel and turn back just real quick to the book of Psalms. Locate Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8 is an incredible psalm about creation. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 3, he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. In other words, he's talking about everything that God has made in creation. He says in 4, What is man that you take thought of him? And then look at this phrase, And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God or the angels, depending on your translation, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Well, look at verse 6. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever pass through the paths of the seas. The psalmist praises God because in creation, God gave man dominion, and God put man over the beast. But do you remember what happened? In the beginning, the Ancient of Days set up a freshly created kingdom called Earth, and he put a man and a woman on the throne to rule over it in his place. And God literally said, quote, subdue the earth and rule over it. And then what happened? The woman listened to the beast. A serpent came and deceived her. And now all of a sudden, man who's supposed to rule over the beast is the one being ruled by the beast. We, we see there that it was now the, the one that led him astray and all of creation was flipped upside down. All of creation was rearranged where man was called to rule over it. Now man is being ruled over. And so what is the hope that we have? That some would come who is the son of man that can take that dominion back. So it's no surprise then that the seemingly harmless garden snake of Genesis chapter 3 turns into what? A freak of nature. In Revelation 12, he is a multi-headed, bloodthirsty, fiery red dragon. And the beast gets out of control. And since the garden, he and his beastly underlords have been seeking not only to crush and to trample, but to still kill and destroy. But the promise was made in Genesis 3. What was the promise? That the seed of the woman will come and stomp on the head of the beast and take back the dominion and take the rule that was supposed to be ours that we forfeited through our sin. He will take through his obedience. And through Adam, creation was flipped upside down, but through this second Adam, creation will be flipped right side up. By the way, this son of man, did you notice where he travels in this vision in verse 13? It says, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. That's odd. He's not coming from the Ancient of Days, he's coming up to him. It seems that instead of going from heaven to earth, in this glimpse, he is going from earth to heaven. It's as if he is ascending through the clouds and making his way into the throne room of God. 
And then we come to the crescendo of this, verse 14. By the way, verse 14, if you look closely, it reminds me an awful lot of something that you may remember from Matthew 28. Remember Matthew 28? It says what in verse 9? All authority has been given to me. In other words, verse 14, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Go therefore and make disciples of who? All the nations. In other words, that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. And lo, I will be with you always, when? Until the end of the age. In other words, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Well, that's the end of the vision. There's the sea with its beasts, and then there's the throne room with the Son of Man. Now, the rest of the chapter is here to help us understand the vision. Now, if you notice, I've connected a few dots, but I haven't really interpreted it yet. You say, yeah, you did. You talked about Jesus. I never said Jesus. Go back and listen to the tape. You say, are you talking about Jesus? Well, what do you think? You see, Daniel here is then given the interpretation. In verses 16, he says, please make known to me the exact meaning of all this. And so the angel begins to tell him the meaning of all this. He says in verse 17, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. This is the first time we are explicitly told what these four beasts represent. He says they are kings. Later he calls them kingdoms, so it's apparently interchangeable here. There are four of them, which harkens back to Daniel chapter 2. Remember how many medals were in it? There were four kinds of medals. And the angel here doesn't label them, but stresses the fact that, notice what he says, that they will arise from the earth, one after another after another. By the way, didn't we see historically this already in Daniel? Judah was overtaken by Babylon, and Babylon was overtaken by Medo-Persia. Don't you see the fact that, 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 that the nations keep rising one after another, after another, after another? We've seen this all since the beginning of time. This interpretation of the angel here reminds us that the nations are constantly changing. And in some ways, their exact identity may be irrelevant because guess what? They're not going to stick around. Is that not what we've seen? Has any earthly empire delivered on its utopian promise? The Egyptians tried it and they failed. The Romans tried it and they failed. The Shang Dynasty tried it and they failed. The Nazis tried it and they failed. Some say we'll try this form of government or that form of government. We will never find heaven on earth through beastly governments. It's always chaos and turmoil. And so verse 18 then says, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all the ages to come. Now, isn't that an odd way to end that verse? Look what he says there. <laughs> they will have it forever for all ages to come. Forever? For, doesn't forever mean for all ages to come? And doesn't for all ages to come mean forever? Why does he say it twice? Because that's how he's trying to stress the point. Do you see the comparison here? 
Do you see what the interpretation of the angel says? He's saying here that, 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 that the beasts will come and go. These kings and kingdoms will come and go. They will arise. But when the kingdom of God comes, it will be here to stay. It will be permanent. The nations roar and the nations war. But he says, do you understand, Daniel, that in the end, God wins? Brothers and sisters, is that not a great comfort? Let's be honest, governments are still changing. Some through ballots and some through bullets. Thankfully, we live in a peaceful land for the most part when it comes to the transition of power. We just had an election this last week, didn't we? Maybe your guy won. Maybe your guy didn't. Guess what? If he didn't win, there will be another election in four years. And if he didn't win, guess what? Don't get too comfortable because there will be another election in four years. Right? We're constantly changing from one beast to the next beast to the next beast, from one to the another to the another. Some have soft, fluffy wings and we don't mind them. Others have razor-sharp teeth that want to destroy us. We're not the first generation to live with this foreboding sense of uncertainty and political unrest. We never really know what to expect. That's why we sit up at nights and wonder about the returns. What kind of beast are we going to get? <laughs> and Daniel's point is just realize they're always going to be uncertain whether it was the ones in his immediate time or the ones in our own times. But he says, the thing you need to focus on is the fact that when God's kingdom comes, it will be here forever and ever without end. Why? Because the kingdom of God is ruled by the Son of Man who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot be impeached and will never be voted out of office. And he is already occupying the throne in heaven, and one day he will occupy the throne on earth. And when that happens, we won't have to sit up at night wondering who's going to win the kingship vote in the kingdom, because why? Our guy always wins. So the angel says that the future kingdom, these earthly kingdoms, they'll come and go, and they'll be beastly, and they'll be vicious, and they'll be all those things, but this future kingdom, it's going to be glorious. Now, here's what's interesting. Daniel says, okay, that's cool. Yay, God and all. But that other beast is really freakishly terrifying. Could you talk about that guy some? Right? He actually said, this is the thing you need to know. And he goes, yeah, but that little thing over there is kind of weird and freaky. Can you please explain that one to me? And so he wants to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. Now, the, an the, the angel answers him, but his answer is clearly unclear. Because while he answers the question, he then raises like 50 more questions. He introduces new things, and it kind of makes you go, okay, Daniel, could you ask a follow-up question? Like, hey, what is that, and what is that? But Daniel just moves on. But nevertheless, the angel says, I'll tell you what the last beast is. This beast is the scariest of all. What, what makes him scary is that he's not even a whole beast. He's just a part of a beast. Did you see the horn that comes out? The horn on an animal is, is often a symbol of its power. In fact, if you've ever seen two rams butt heads, it is unbelievable how much power they generate when they do that. It gives me a headache just watching it. They do that. Why? Because th that's what the horn is there for. 
So this last beast is not even an animal with a little bit of power. It's nothing but power. It is set up and symbolized as, as, as raw power, unbridled control, supreme swagger and pride. It is the beast over all the beasts. He doesn't tell us, is this a past kingdom, a future kingdom, all the kingdoms? The angel doesn't say. The angel just says, you need to know this guy's bad news. And the saints who were given the kingdom in verse 18, look down at verse 21, I kept looking and that horn was what? Waging war with the saints and overpowering them. So the saints who were given the kingdom are now the ones who are being destroyed because they have the kingdom. This one is anti-God and anti-God's people. And he comes to persecute, to make war and overpower them. By the way, we prayed for the persecuted church today, which we do from time to day, but today is actually the international day of prayer for the persecuted church. What a day to pray and to look at a passage like this. When we live in a land that is free, free from persecution, and yet when so many of our brothers and sisters know this feeling, who know what it is to have war waged against them, but this war doesn't go on forever, it says, because God himself will show up to judge the horn. Notice this horn, how evil and wicked he is. Look, look down at verse 25. He says, He will speak out against the Most High and will wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. Boy, this is one arrogant little beast. No, notice he first of all is engaged in blasphemy. He speaks against the Most High God. And then it says that he will persecute, he will wear down the saints of the Highest One. And then it says that he will go on record, notice, notice this phrase, intending to make alterations in times and in law. This is a, 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 a callback to Daniel 2 where Daniel says that only God changes the times and the epics. Only God changes the seasons. But this little horn will say, no, 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 I'm the one that does this. And he will set himself up, if you will, that way. Now, let me, let me connect another little dot here. In 1 John, 1 John says, little children, you know that uh, Antichrist is coming while many antichrists have already appeared. So that's where I think John concedes that every one of these beastly kingdoms have a sense of that raw power wanting to control and dominate, but even John says antichrist is coming. If this is not the antichrist, certainly it is an antichrist. And, and by the way, antichrist, the, 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 the prefix anti in Greek, it doesn't mean against. It doesn't mean he's against Christ. It means instead of. So this man sets him off instead. So look at the contrast in this chapter here. The picture is one that comes, the deliverer, the one who receives the dominion is the son of man. And what does he do? He doesn't show up and say, hey, everybody, I just need you to know that I'm God. I'm God. I'm God. What does he do? He shows up riding the clouds, which is something what? Only God can do. And so it's obvious that this, is, this, is, this, this son of man is doing something. Yet the whole time, the, Daniel sees this little horn over here going, Hey, everybody, I'm God. I'm God. Don't you know that I'm God? 
And the contrast couldn't have been more stark. The little horn has to boast and brag, I'm God and I can change everything. And yet, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Psalm 2. Remember what Psalm 2 says? Why do the nations rage and stand against God and shake their fist at him? And it says the Lord and his anointed one, literally his Messiah, sit in heaven and laugh. They think it's hilarious that the kings of the earth think they're permanent and think that they're superior and think that they're in control of all things. And it says what? Therefore, you need to do homage. We read earlier, do homage to the son, kiss the son, revere him, lest what? His anger come against you. And this little horn that is boasting and bragging, God walks up to him and says, okay, enough of that. Boo, like a bug, and just flips him off the scene. <laughs> Verse 26, but the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion, that, that, that is the horn's dominion, will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever then the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions, that is, all of them finally put together, they will serve and obey Him. The shortest summary that I can give you of Daniel 7 is that in some sense, this is God's version of beauty and the beast. The ugly kingdoms of, this, of men are terrible beasts that will be overtaken by this remarkably beautiful kingdom of God. I, I know there's a sense in which we don't like the idea of you know, nations warring and, and a nation being invaded, but think about this. Imagine if for a moment that your country was... was you know, there was a country to its border. What if, you, you, what if on the border you were about to be invaded by a kingdom and a king that was all-knowing and all-powerful and all-merciful? And what if that king said, I'll give everyone an inheritance and a mansion and I will give them eternal love and life. And in my kingdom, I will outlaw pain and tears and I will even outlaw death. If you knew that a kingdom like that was on the borders waiting to invade, would you not roll out the welcome mat and pray, Thy kingdom come? Of course you would. And Daniel sees that yes, the nations roar and the nations war, but in the end, God wins. And brothers and sisters, because God wins, we win too. Do you see what he says? And the whole of this, the possession uh, will be given to the saints of the highest one. He will share with us. Romans 8, 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and what? Co-heirs with Christ. The Son of Man will not just rule over us. My friends, Jesus Christ will rule alongside His people and He will restore the earth to the kind of creation where men rule in righteousness and truth. Because He's the Son of Man that has the dominion. And He will share it with His people. And He says that this kingdom, when it comes, it will not pass, it will not fade, it will go nowhere. 
It is true King Jesus is conquering hearts and lives even now through the gospel. As the message goes out, all of our hearts are, are beastly. Our, our hearts are deceitful and wicked and turn away from God. And yet what? The, the message of the gospel of Christ's death and his resurrection, when it comes, it takes us who are enemies of God and it turns us into the children of God. It transforms us because he gives us life and forgiveness and he calls us away from being on the other side against him, but he invites us to lay down our arms to repent of our sins and to come and be part of his victorious army. And the church is proof that Christ is enthroned in little places here and there. And yet we know from this that there is coming a day when Christ will be enthroned over all the earth. And the kingdoms of this world will what? Become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. As I said in Dan Daniel chapter 7, I think it is where the wild things are. You know how that book closes? It says this. The wild things roared their terrible roars and gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes, and showed their terrible claws. But Max waved goodbye, and left them all behind, and finally went home. My friends, the beastly nations will roar, and claw, and scratch, and maybe even kill. But guess what? God wins, and we get to go home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of Daniel 7 that fixes our attention upon the Son of Man, our Lord Jesus. We thank you that his dominion is an everlasting one, that his kingdom is an ultimate one, and that it will never be destroyed. Father, forgive us for putting our hopes in earthly kingdoms. Forgive us for putting our faith and giving our hearts to earthly governments. Lord, help us to know that fine line of being good citizens, good men, good women who work for what is right in our world and yet who does not give ourselves totally to any except you. And Father, we pray that we would be good ambassadors, good citizens of your kingdom, that we might serve and obey the Son of Man forever. That what is coming in the end will now be true in our own midst and that every nation, tribe, and tongue might come to know him. We thank you that you win, and through your victory, we win too. Help us, O oh Lord, to walk now in that victory for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.